Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This time on To War and Back. I think there's this weird misconception that the healing takes place within four walls of a hospital, and that's total bullshit. Those four walls of the hospital were like my enemy, especially for somebody like me who lost myself physically and mentally with the brain injury. Now emotionally I'm struggling because I don't know who I am anymore. We start taking incoming. The round came in, rang my bell pretty good. You get the white flash, everything kind of goes out, and you have a little talk with God or whatever. And, you know, when you have a high-order explosives going through the brain, it tears things. You do get some training on how to write a condolence letter. Dear Mr. or Mrs. America, we regret to inform you. Everyone's seen in the movies how it plays out, but it's not ever easy. And you send it off, and you just hope and pray that the person that reads it can understand Welcome back. I'm Phil Briggs, a journalist and a Navy veteran. And this is the story of three American combat vets. U.S. Marine Corps Sergeant Kirstie Ennis, U.S. Marine Corps Major Scott Husing, and U.S. Army veteran Boom Cutler. If you've been with us by now, you've heard about Scott Husing and the Marines of Echo Company engaging in daily firefights with insurgents in Iraq. You've met Army veteran Boone Cutler, who's been kicking in doors and getting face-to-face with Iraqis and insurgents. He's a psyoper or psychological operations specialist, meaning he's face-to-face with locals trying to work them and get any information he can from them about what's going on in the city, all while trying to spread whatever message we want them to hear. It's a job regular civilians don't often think about when they think about war, but it can quickly get ugly, and we'll hear about that soon. For now, let's get back to Marine Corps door gunner and airframes mechanic Kirstie Ennis. We left off at the part where her second deployment turned into her nightmare. During a combat resupply mission to a forward operating base in Afghanistan, her helicopter went down. Her leg was torn up, and she eventually found out it would have to be amputated. She also had bilateral shoulder damage, major cervical and spine injuries, a traumatic brain injury, a busted jaw, and lacerations so severe that they basically amounted to a hole in her face. So when we spoke with her about coming home, well, it meant spending a lot of time in the hospital. We're going to turn the corner. We're going to come home. You're banged up. You know, you had the amputation, of course, MRSA and your infection. You had to even get it above the knee. Talk to me about that journey a little bit. Uh, you'd mentioned in one of the articles I read something about it being like a toddler because an amputation that high just you're relearning everything all over again. Yeah. So, you know, when I first lost uh, my leg below the knee, it was something that I like, it didn't phase me because, you know, we jokingly call that a paper cut. Like, ah, whatever, <laughs> walk it off. Um, so it really didn't phase me. I was like, you know what? I got my knee. I still have my hip. Things are great. Right. Then it progressively got worse. There was more of necrosis, as you mentioned, MRSA during a revision surgery. Um, and then I even had the threat of almost losing my hip. Um, and in that moment, I basically told my doctors not to wake me up. If I was going to wake up and have no femur, didn't want to deal with it, didn't want to fight it anymore. Um, I was, I was going to give up. 
And so when I woke up and I actually saw that I did in fact have, you know, eight more inches of femur, it was a relief, but I was also devastated. Um, you know, taking two of the three joints out mm-hmm. that you have in one side, it's a game changer. Mm-hmm. You know, the femur is not meant to be a weight bearing bone. All of that weight, you know, goes down to the knee. And in turn, you have your ankle for stability yeah. if you're a normal hu- human. <laughs> um, <laughs> but now, you know, I don't have any of that. So everything is different. You know, I don't have a quad or a hamstring. I have to use other muscles now, especially my core to be able to stabilize myself. Yeah, you, like your obliques and stuff really get taxed. Exactly, yeah. yeah. Everything takes a conscious effort now. Even even after being above the knee amputee for what, three, three and a half years? Like putting one foot in front of the other is not just a mundane thing. It's not something that you just blindly do now. It's still a process. You know, you still have to understand how your body's going to react with that prosthetic. And in turn, you know, the reaction that you're going to get from the, from the prosthetic knee or foot. Um, but it really is, um, you've mentioned it. It's like being a toddler all over again. You know, I had to learn, da- learn how to like fall down, how to get back up, how to balance, how to walk, run, um, walk on grass, walk on the sidewalk, walk on rocks. Like, yeah. Yeah. Everything has a new sensation. Everything takes an entirely different amount of effort um, even. So like, and even just the way that my body compensates for all of it now, um, it's, it's wild. <laughs> I mean, it is wild. Now we move on and we get through the, the rehabilitation and we're learning, as you just mentioned, a lot of that time is spent like idle. I don't want to say it's like all laying in a bed, looking up at the ceiling, but like, I mean, you're not moving fast. And I've heard from a lot of warfighters that like downtime, downtime's not your friend. That's when things kind of creep in. Uh, oh, yeah. Talk to me about the headspace issues. Like obviously for somebody with a traumatic injury, like you've had, it's understandable, but like for even warfighters that don't have that, is that downtime? Is that, is it that harsh? Yeah, actually, like, I think there's this weird misconception that the healing, you know, healing takes place within four walls of a hospital, and that's total bullshit. Um, that f- those four walls of the hospital were, like, my enemy. And so, like, I just, I needed anything to get me out of the hospital. And oftentimes, like, especially for somebody like me who lost myself physically and mentally with the brain injury, now emotionally I'm struggling, struggling because I don't know who I am anymore. I don't know what my life's going to hold. I don't know where my future is, if I'm going to have that military career. I mean, there were so many unknowns and that unknown aspect is terrifying. And Mm. you become your own worst enemy really quickly. You come up with this means of like catastrophic thinking. You think the worst possible thing is going to happen of every circumstance in your life. Um, And I did, I got to myself. Kirstie's struggle at home was quickly becoming bigger than any struggle she'd faced abroad. Her injury was one that sent her home immediately. But for others, Getting injured doesn't always mean you're headed back. Boone Cutler was one of those cases. So we talked about his experience. We always did missions at night, and that that was for a reason. So we slept in late because we usually didn't come back from a patrol till you know, zero three, and then you're working on reports. So you, you grab some breakfast, go to sleep type of thing. So I got up that afternoon, and I heard these 240s rocking on the range. And um, I was like, man, those guys sound good. And then I, you know, I kind of puff up my chest with some pride. And I was like, oh, yeah, that's one of my guys over there. You know, so I felt really good about it. And all of a sudden, you know, we start taking incoming. 
The report on the first round was at the range where I knew my guy was. And so I tore ass out of the Haji shop and, and everybody's running to bunkers and I passed up the bunker and was running to the range. And um, the round came in real close. And I uh, rang my bell pretty good. Did it knock you to the ground? It knocked me. Yeah. I'm not sure if I went down, stayed down, got up. I was kind of in an altered universe for a while. <laughs> and yeah. uh, it was pretty interesting. And Like I've heard it compared to like a car accident for some too. Like you're not sure, like time slows down. Everything's like you're just. It was an out of body experience. That's the only way I can explain it. You know, you get the white flash. Everything kind of goes out and and you have a little talk with God or whatever and. You know, you have a, you know, high order explosives, you know, you know, going through the brain, it tears things. And, um, and so that, that was, that was the, the biggest part of, of my injuries. And I, I had, I had had head injuries and, and, uh, neck injuries. You know, I had a subluxation C1, C2 from a, from a jump, hmm. you know, before. And so this exacerbated that again as well. But, you know, we were on the base. I had no gear on, so I had no protection and just, um, you know, took the heat. Mm. And uh, and so that was that. And then, you know, just in the in the order of, of business of, of war, I mean, it's a kinetic environment. It's a very physical environment. You're, you're going to kick doors. You're going to, you know, you're going to get in fights. You're going to fall down. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, these things accumulate. But the, the head injury itself definitely had just gotten worse and worse and worse. As a matter of fact... The, I didn't think that the blast had really hurt me. It was a couple of weeks after the blast. We were doing a raid on a house, and I was on a rooftop next to the house that we were hitting, and I was covering the back door. And to get up on the roofs in Iraq, you don't have to go through a house. A lot of times there's a stairway right on the side. You just run up the stairway, and you're on the mm. roof. And so I was covering down this house, and up against the, the short wall on the back of the house where I would normally just lean over and, and cover down, um, I, I couldn't because there was a there was a bunch of crap up against that wall. I mean, there was like a satellite dish, and there, there, there was just a bunch of crap. And so I climbed up on this platform that was up against there, and so I could look over and lean, and and everything was cool. Uh, and I heard him say "breach clear" on the other side, and "breach clear." So I'm waiting for somebody to pop out the back door, pop that guy, and I can you know follow in on the breach. Nobody comes out the back door, so I'm like, okay, I'm gonna go follow in on the breach. So I got up, and as I stood up and turned, I fell off the platform. Oh, shit. And it was just because I was having cognitive issues and balance issues from the blast. So now, I, now I've now i sustained my second head injury within a couple weeks in Iraq and also you know, really jacked up the neck. So I literally woke up on a rooftop in Sadr City after being knocked unconscious, not knowing where I'm at, you know, trying to figure it out. Uh, I'm not hearing any noises. Kind of get my my bearing straight. Hustle back down the 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 stairs, and I see a I see a guy holding on the door, which would be normal. And he's holding on the door, and I blow past him, and I say, "Color coming in." I blow past him, expecting to see other guys doing a search. There's nobody there. N- nobody there. I'm the only guy in this house. So I back back out knowing, that, okay, there's, there's been a disconnect in time. What the hell is going on? So I back back out and I go, where's the team? And they go, oh, sorry. And they went back to the truck to get more guys and put the breach equipment away. I was like, 
dude, couldn't you have told me that? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I was going to say, what's up? <laughs> on with? my way through the door, you couldn't have said it. Wait a minute. You know, uh, you know, maybe you just thought I was tougher than I was. <laughs> I'm going to do this on my own type of thing. Thanks, private. I mean. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty funny now. But so th- that, so I sustained my second head injury, yeah. you know, because of the first injury, which I'd completely blown off. Uh, so that's, that's how these things kind of accumulate. How common was that? What you experienced? Oh, there's so hundreds common. of guys that like would have had a similar situation. Oh, unbelievable. Unbelievable number. I mean, literally in Iraq, everything either blows up or falls on you. Wow. You either fall off of it, it falls on you or it blows up or you're in a fight. It's, it's pretty regular. It's pretty regular. After six months of combat in Sadr City, the injuries racked up. After multiple head traumas, a shoulder injury, and knee problems from constantly kicking indoors, Boone admitted that even his team knew something was wrong. That was getting worse, you know. By the, by the time we were at the end of the tour, because I'd asked my guys, you know, hey, could you tell there was something wrong with me? And they, you know, reluctantly said, by the time the end of the tour was, you were only getting out of bed to go on missions. And that was true, you know. I, and even because of the head injury and the neck injury, we go out on missions and I'd just take my helmet and leave it in the truck. And they're like, what are you doing, you know? And the guy, I couldn't wear a helmet because it would it would just exacerbate headaches so bad that the weight of the helmet was causing me so much problem that I was just like, well, fuck it, I'm, I'm not wearing a helmet. And uh, we'd be out on patrols with the with the other units as the attachment, and, and the patrol leader would be like, "Hey, sergeant, where's your helmet?" I'm like, "Hey, I'm establishing rapport. I don't need to wear a helmet." And I totally blew it off, you know. I'm telling this guy, hey, "It's part of my job. I don't need to wear a helmet." They trust me more. Trust me. That. I know what it is. There are no droids here. You don't see these people. You know, you Jedi mind trickle. And so, you know, there were times I just I just flat out wouldn't wear my helmet, and. Um, and I, I knew after after the mortar explosion that I, you know, I mean, it's not like I was missing body parts or anything. I just I just knew I really had my bell rung pretty good. And I would be typing up my my situation reports because I had to I had to send up sit reps every day. Sit reps, yep. And um, I always reviewed my sit reps with my team. So it's like, hey, guys, did I miss anything? You know, any alibis? You know, what's missing in the report? And it was also a way to make sure because not everybody sees the same thing on a patrol. Oh, yeah. You know, if you dismount and you're in a house talking to people, you know, you're not the guy in the truck who saw something different or the guy on the gun who saw something different. So you want to get everybody's input. And it goes into the sit rep. So I type up the report and, you know, we'd have different stops along the way. You know, at first we stopped at this grid and talked to this person. This is what happened. This is, you know, then we, you know, actioned on this, this information and, and hit this house. And this is what we found there. All that kind of stuff. Well, all my stuff was out of order. And they're like, Hey, Sergeant, you know, that's, that's not the order. That's not what happened. And, you know, so on. So, and I was like, really, you know, I, but I trusted them and they were giving me accurate information. They all agreed. So I'm like, okay, there's something wrong with me because I'm getting stuff out of order. So from that point, we all wrote the sit reps together. Mm-hmm. And so I'd get the lowest ranking guy and say, okay, you're, you're the one typing. <laughs> the rest of us are going right. to, I literally, I kind of had to fake it a little bit because I didn't want them to know anything was wrong with me, you know, primarily because I didn't want them to worry, but I, I but I wanted to make sure the, the reports are right. So, so I would sit back and play the, okay guys, where'd we go first? 
We went here first. Okay, we went there first. And then I give my side. Now you give your side. Where do we go next? Working get, around your injury. Had to so work around as, the injuries. So as not to even alert anybody else that it was and we still got the job done. bad as it was. Right. So we still got the job done too. But the injuries just kept exacerbating and getting worse. And so I asked my guys, you know, could you tell? And they were like, yeah, because by the end of the tour, you were only getting up for the missions. And I said, could you tell there's a problem with me outside the wire? And they're like, no. Outside the wire, you were golden. You were always golden. Yeah, I mean, you play hurt or you don't play, you know, so you just play hurt. You know, my, my CEO had known that I had gotten hurt. And he's like, you know, we want to get you back. So, you know, you can you can get treatment. And that way you're not going to be stuck at a military hospital for a long time. You know, you can really get stuck there for a long time. And I was like, no, I'm fine. Everything's good. You know, I just need to get my guys to because we were, we were closing down Sauter City and we were going to be at another base. And I said, you know, I, I really got to make this transition. And, and to his credit, he... He didn't make me leave, you know. So I finished my tour and took myself out. Boone would later arrive at Walter Reed Army Medical Center. And that's where things would really get bad. Thank you for listening to the podcast. And I want to take a second and tell you how you can thank a veteran. You can make a monthly donation to Purple Heart Homes Hearts of Honor Club. What is Purple Heart Homes? Well, it's an organization that helps veterans from all eras. And it was founded by two Iraq war veterans who know just how much help some veterans actually need. See, back in 2004, John Galena and Dale Beatty were traumatically wounded during an IED blast in Iraq. And when they got back, they received a lot of support. But they noticed veterans from other eras before 9-11 didn't get the same kind of deal. And when you think about aging veterans, like the Vietnam era vets, uh, you think about people that maybe never even got the service-connected disability benefits they were entitled to. Because the world was a lot different in the 70s. And veterans certainly felt that. So now as they get older, they come upon hard times, or maybe they have health issues, uh, their homes fall into disrepair, or maybe they need wheelchair ramps to even get in and get out. Well, that's exactly where Purple Heart Homes can help. They help fix homes. They oftentimes build entirely new homes for these veterans. But in order to complete that mission, well, they need donations. And with as little as 10 or 20 bucks a month, you could be making that difference. Maybe you don't want to give money. You can start a chapter in your own hometown. You can volunteer on an already existing chapter somewhere near you. There's so many ways to help veterans, and there's such a need. So the next time you want to make a heartfelt thank you, Go to purpleheartholmesusa.org. That's P-H-H-U-S-A.org. And join the Purple Heart Homes Hearts of Honor Club. And you will be thanking a veteran for their service. Meanwhile, in Ramadi, Scott Husing and the men of Echo Company continued to fight. And while Major Husing didn't have wounds like Kirstie or Boone, he did endure a different kind of pain. I've never asked you about this, but how did they train you or how did you learn how to make the toughest phone call that any military officer ever has to make? And that's about the death of someone on your team. They don't really train you to do it. There's no playbook or class they give you. You, you do get some training on how to make a condolence call or write a condolence letter. That's what they train you on as a young captain. 
is you write this mock letter, Dear Mr. and Mrs. America. We regret to inform you. Everyone's seen it in the movies how it plays out, but it's it's never as sterile or as scripted as that. And I wrote those letters. Um, many other people have written those letters, and it's not ever easy. And you write the letter, and you send it off, and you just hope and pray that the person that reads it can understand a little bit. But for me, it was always not enough. Like I felt the letter was never enough. So I had to make a phone call. And when I had to call the parents of Corporal Dustin Libby, who was killed on December 6th in 2006, it was tough. I mean, when you talk about service and sacrifice and risk and giving your life for your country, 5,000 miles away from home, and then having to deal with that and be the parent and to receive a phone call like that that was, it's, there's really no words to describe it other than gut-wrenching. It's, it's horrible to have to do that. Through the whole process from that night when I made that phone call to today, the times that I've continued to talk to not only my own Gold Star families, those that have lost sons and daughters, but to be surrounded by other Gold Star families and be invited up every year to the California Gold Star Mothers Memorial at the Marines Memorial Club. And just to be welcomed in as a person that understands what their son went through, that witnessed that. And it may not have been their son. They didn't weren't all in my unit. They were in units all over throughout this whole war and sure. all these countries. And they understand, they can connect with me on a level that I understand what loss is of my fellow Marine or brother in arms. Mm -hmm. And th they understand it from a different aspect. And it's, it's good to be connected. And it's also good to see those families to this day, years after they've lost, to come together, stay connected, and really celebrate the life of knowing that their son or daughter was absolutely doing what they love to do. Yeah. And every time we think about them, every time we memorialize them, we don't have to do it in one day at a hotel or one day on Memorial Day. Like we think about them all the time. And some days I just pick up the phone, call them up and say, hey, how you doing? You know? That's cool. Yeah, we're thinking about you. We love you. To a warfighter, all of these things may be just part of the job but each creates a wound that is often hard to heal. I wanted to know more about how Kirstie, Scott, and Boone could be affected by these experiences. So I asked a guy who would know. This is Pete A. Turner. I'm a former counterintelligence agent with the U.S. Army. Pete is a friend of Scott's and has, according to Scott, spent more time outside the wire than anyone he knows. Now, if you're not familiar with the term the wire, imagine it like this. When our military deploys and sets up shop in an area of operation, well, that might be a building or that might be an area lined with, like, sandbags and HESCO barriers. And on top of it would be barbed-like wire or concertine wire, basically meant to keep the enemy out. Inside that area is known as the FOB, or the Forward Operating Base. It's like our home base. Whether it's an abandoned building or a series of tents surrounded by sandbags, it's heavily guarded. However, combat warfighters don't stay on the FOB all day. In 
fact, they go on patrols every day or every night. And that's when you go outside the wire. And that's when shit gets really dangerous. I was often authorized to wear the uniform. I typically didn't because I didn't want to be in the army to the people that I saw. So um, I would never lie about it, but you know, I, I wanted to stand apart as being something other than what those guys were. Uh, there are times when I have been outside of the wire with no other U.S. element, uh, and not illegally, you know, but just it's hard to run around with a biker gang and make friends with people. And that's basically what a, a platoon is. It's just a bike gang. It's a bunch of ruffians that have guns and come and eat all your food. And uh, when you're trying to do what I'm trying to do, which is, you know, create a network of people that believe in you and, and will give you information they wouldn't otherwise give people. You know, sometimes you've got to do that on your own. So certainly I've been outside the wire to grab things that the unit simply couldn't get. But just plenty of times, the vast majority of the time I was out with a platoon or with a squad or, you know, with a team of some kind. But still engaging the worst possible humans on Earth as much as I could possibly meet them. Wow. Is it comparable in my mind then to like going into a bad part of town and you actually talk to the Crips and the Bloods? Yeah, absolutely. So for sure, there's people that won't engage with the Americans as a norm because it's just, it's, it's not good for business. And I'm able to meet those people. Put it to you this way. I was, I wouldn't say by name because I don't know if they necessarily knew what my name was, but they, the Taliban wanted to know who I was and what I was doing in their AO. And so they set up a meeting with me at it. I didn't know this at the time, but that absolutely happened where they were trying to figure out, you know, was I a threat to them? And they determined that I wasn't and I gained their respect. Now I never was able to set up a meeting with them because that really wasn't my goal. But you think about that, like I was, I was, I was hacked off on being viable by the Taliban. Wow. Just plain showing up to some of your work assignments could have been instant death. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Well, it brings us to the point that I kind of wanted to go over with you because, you know, we're both friends with Scott. You know Scott Husing, um, you know, even better than I do. And I wanted to talk a little bit about what that combat experience does to the mind. Um, mm. You know, there's, there's a bit of a hangover there. And Scott's so well adjusted and so well adapted and has channeled his energies in all the right directions. And I really feel came out of this bigger, better, better, stronger but there was a time when I didn't know him, and you probably did, but there's a time in all the warfighters' lives uh, when they first turn that corner, and combat's fresh in their mind. Talk to me about what it does to your mind. Well, you're definitely at a heightened awareness all the time. You're always switched on. You're always, your head, you talk about your head being on a swivel, like that's, that's true, but it doesn't stop. You know, even when you go home, you're, you know, you're hypervigilant. That's one of the problems with PTSD is I'm supposed to be hypervigilant. My brain operates on that premise. And then, you know, I come home and that's not a thing anymore. Like, you don't need to be hypervigilant. There is no threat here. That person being on the phone is just some lady's mom, you know? She's not a threat. So when you're in combat, you've got an alternate reality where ethics are totally different. You know, the ethics in combat, they don't make sense to someone even at the, uh, you know, the military staff level. They don't understand what you see every day and they can't comprehend it because they're not out there. They, they get it and they allow you the ability to make decisions on the fly, but it's a completely, you're on a different planet. And I often refer to it as like the people who are, let's say above battalion level, which is a unit full of a thousand people. The people above that level are basically in a spaceship. 
and I deal in the ground truth. And the ground truth is, look, the boots on the ground aren't trained properly to deal with the ground truth. So even they are an element above where I'm working because I'm working in the local reality. I'm not working with the military's reality. So to come back from that deep dive, you know, I'm, I'm on the bottom of the ocean. I'm at Bikini Bottom with SpongeBob. You know, next thing you know, I'm at the Ritz talking to somebody. That's the difference in terms of what you experience going out day to day as a combat warrior versus any other form of life. Hmm. Naturally, as all memories do, even an emotional breakup with your girlfriend will stay with you for a couple days and months until you kind of get over it. But like, does the combat experience have a very similar grip on you for a few months afterward? Yeah, you know, I can give you a real last example. I recall clearly in my mind watching an Iraqi guy walk across the street during a firefight. I don't know if he was there just trying to get across the street to survive and was innocent. I don't know if he was culpable in, in what was happening, but that dude didn't make it across the street. He was shot and dead before he even hit the ground. So you see enough of those things and, and they stick with you. You know, uh, when I was in Bosnia, they had massacred a bunch of kids in our area. And you don't forget that stuff. It just stays there and you get to deal with it. You know, I get to see those atrocities. Those, you know, and even if it's combat and you see someone dying, sometimes it's like, you know, hurrah, you know, we're winning this thing. But there's enough time when you can't make sense of it. Whether it was, I mean, it's always legitimate, but... Sometimes innocent people get killed. Sometimes the enemy get killed. And, and, you know, it's just hard to make sense of when you've seen so much of it. And then you see the results of all that stuff, and it really gets hard. You're not supposed to be good at people dying. This is a thing that, that's, that's a reality. There are certain people that specialize in it. You know, like a, a funeral home. But if you watch how they care for the family, you know, it's with expertise, it's with a calm demeanor. You know, it, and they're good at it. But when you get to the emotional stuff and the fighting and everything, very much like combat, where you're just, you're left with something that some people handle in, in this way this time, but handle it in another way the next time. And, you know, emotions careen everywhere. Who, who trains to have their emotions careen around haphazardly as you go through a very, very challenging experience? I think it's very much like losing someone who's very, very close to you. And just, it happens and you can become numb to it, but that doesn't mean you're dealing with it any better than anybody else. Death is hard. It's not something you're supposed to be good at. Why wait? Binge all episodes now, exclusively on the Radio.com app, or get this week's episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. On behalf of the production team here at To War and Back, I wanted to thank you for listening to this episode. And before we get into the next one, I wanted to share just a couple really heartfelt things. Specifically, I want to share with you three organizations that are doing incredible things for veterans. There's the Kirstie Ennis Foundation, a nonprofit that she founded to support deserving organizations and help improve the quality of life of veterans. Whether it's funding to help a veteran business expand or whether it's taking veterans outside to experience firsthand the healing powers of Mother Nature. Supporting the Kirstie Ennis Foundation is supporting veterans. Major Scott Husing and the Save the Brave organization has a simple philosophy. 
There's no pill, no prescription, and no vaccination that can cure the effects of PTS better than connecting with fellow vets. That's why when you donate to SaveTheBrave.org, veterans go on fishing trips, they go on hiking trips, but more than anything, they stay together. Just hanging out, fishing for the afternoon. I mean, getting back together again is what makes the difference real. And it's also what's really going to make a difference in the epidemic of suicide. And that's where Army veteran Boone Cutler really wants you to make a difference. Now, if you look up livetotell.org, you'll find the incredible story of Lance Corporal Johnny Lutz. Lance Corporal Lutz fought the good fight with his PTSD, but sadly took his own life. But now his name and his life serves to inspire every generation behind him. LiveToTell.org also has an annual calendar full of events and get-togethers. Whether it's concerts or backyard barbecues, they're always ensuring that the warfighters stay connected. Surviving combat is hard. Surviving with the memories of war can be even harder. But through the work of the Kirstie Ennis Foundation, SaveTheBrave.org, and LiveToTell.org, there's a few places out there doing the work to ensure that warfighters don't just survive, but that they thrive. Supporting any of them is the best way to say thank you for your service. We really need new phones. T-Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T-Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade-in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month without a pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for all well qualified customers. Contact us before canceling account to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. See T-Mobile.com. 